Thanks for joining us on this week's episode, where we finish our discussion of the Best Picture nominees from the 91st Academy Awards. I'm Maddie. And I'm Kelsey. Let's finally find out if the Oscars got it wrong. Final four, baby. It's happening. It's all happening. The tension is high. So yeah, we've had quite the tournament. Some great movies have gone down in various rounds. Yeah, it has to happen. People get tough matchups. There are upsets. It's the nature of the tourney, baby. But we're down to our top four. So we'll run through the matchups as usual. Count it down to declare a winner. See if we agree who's going to the finals, baby. Okay, our first matchup is our number two seed, Paddington 2, a family film about a young bear who's framed for stealing a pop-up book. It stars Ben Whishaw and Hugh Grant, directed by Paul King, written by Paul King and Simon Farnaby. It was nominated for zero Academy Awards. That's up against number 11, The Favorite, a historical comedy about two women vying for the affections of British monarch Queen Anne. It stars Olivia Colman, Emma Stone, and Rachel Weisz. It was directed by Yorgos Lanthimos, written by Deborah Davis and Tony McNamara. It's nominated for nine and it won one. Best actress, Olivia Coleman. One, one two, two, three. Paddington favorite. 2. <laughs> I love them both so much. <laughs> I mean, if anything, I feel like it would be great to send Paddington 2 to the final because it's Paddington 2. Mm hmm. Personally, I probably like by this much prefer the favorite, but let's go with Paddington. Why not? Okay. You've done it, Paddington. Yeah. You were at one point the best reviewed movie on Rotten Tomatoes, and you're making it to the finals of our tournament. You deserve it, Paddington, too. You're wonderful. All right. That leads us to our other semi. It includes our number eight seed, If Beale Street Could Talk. A romance about a man falsely accused of rape and his partner who tries to clear his name. It stars Kiki Lane, Stefan James, and Regina King. It's written and directed by Barry Jenkins. It's nominated for three and it won one. Best Supporting Actress, Regina King. And it faces our final contender, the four-seed Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, an animated film about Miles Morales, a teen from Brooklyn that develops powers after being bitten by a radioactive spider. It stars Shamik Moore, Jake Johnson, and Haley Steinfeld. Directed by Bob Persichetti, Peter Ramsey, and Rodney Rothman. Written by Phil Lord and Rodney Rothman. Nominated for one, it won one. Best Animated Feature. One, one two, two, three. Spider-Man! Spider yes! Spider-Verse! Wow! Our final <laughs> matchup is two great family films. Appropriate for all ages. Heck Yeah! There's something delightful about that. Okay, that means, you know, strong showings, but getting out in the semis. We've got the favorite. It's respectable to go to the final four. They should not be ashamed. Of course it is. The favorite and if Beale Street could talk. I guess we should start with the favorite. Sure. Why not? Tell me about it. The favorite is about Queen Anne, who is a monarch. She's very fascinating. She has this tragic backstory and she became kind of a weirdo. So she lost 17 children in various ways. And now she has all of these rabbits that she deeply cares for. So that's sort of the vibe we're with here with, the, with Queen Anne. And so into that soup 
she has this woman who she's known for a long time who is played by Rachel Weisz and the two of them are in a relationship but also Rachel Weisz is like her most trusted advisor and then a distant cousin of Rachel Weisz's character who is played by Emma Stone enters the picture because she came from you know a wealthy respectable family who has fallen on hard times and she has found herself in a place where she needs a like a servant job so she shows up at the palace knowing that her cousin works there and hoping that she can get her like a job working in the kitchen or something whatever is available and so she does get her a job and through a little bit of circumstance and a little bit of scheming on Emma Stone's characters. And she is thrown into the path of the queen. And over the course of this, Emma Stone catches the two of them having sex in the library or whatever. She happens to be in there getting a book. And so she knows that this is the true nature of their relationship. And she figures out how to potentially use this to her advantage. While all of this is happening, there's obviously political realities unfolding. They're at war. There are debating factions about whether or not they should be committing more money to the war and sending more troops. And Nicholas Holt plays a character who he's sort of the head of the Lords. He's their spokesperson. And so he doesn't want to have them spend any more money because there's sort of discontent among all of the wealthy people. And he needs both insight into the decision making going on with the queen, but also some avenue into influencing her. He needs to lobby the queen. And so he sees that Emma Stone is starting to have some influence and he's trying to get her to be both his spy and also someone to help him out with his quest to influence her. Emma Stone poisons Rachel Weisz's character. <laughs> the queen is mad because she thinks Rachel Weisz has just left in a huff and is now ignoring her. So she doesn't send anyone to look for her. Meanwhile, Emma Stone is there to work her charm. She ends up finagling a marriage to a man with a title out of this. And so now she's secured her place. But just as soon as this happens, sort of the like bloom is off the rose of her relationship with the queen and the queen starts to miss Rachel Weisz and she finally comes back, but the queen is mad at her. There's a breakup, basically, and she is sent out of the kingdom. And then finally, there's a bit of a disillusion of the relationship between Emma Stone and the queen. It ends kind of sad. Nothing can, like, fix the queen's horrible backstory. I think, you know, Emma Stone has won in the end, but yeah. it's not great for her and. The queen lost someone who really did love her. I think Rachel Weisz really did love her in favor of this woman who's only there to improve her station, right? Yep. So that's too bad. I like this movie. Yeah. I think it's really interesting. It's quite funny. It dropped out of my top eight in our last episode. I don't love it as much as The Death of Stalin. And it's interesting. There's sort of like three political satires that we've covered this mm -hmm. year. Sorry to bother you. The Death of Stalin and this movie. And I think think the movie sort of at a nine from the beginning and I wanted there to be a Jason Isaacs who comes in and like refreshes it or kicks sure. it up to 11 or an Equisapien <laughs> if this movie had an Equisapien moment it would really be perfect yeah that you know two-thirds through the movie you like re-energizes you and I don't feel like there was something like that that happened here so it, it kind of is all at the same level, and I wanted a little bit of sure. But I really liked it. I think Emma Stone and Olivia Coleman and Rachel Weisz are all great in it. I also really like Nicholas Holt. And one of my favorite things about him is he's like a giant man. He's very tall, and he's wearing this huge wig, and he's always lurking. And you're like, how is this giant man always just like hiding in the shadows or something? Oh, the juxtaposition of that that was very yeah. funny to me. 
I think overall, the way this movie portrays men is great and hilarious to see these three women at the center of this story of the power struggle and the men are completely on the outside by and large just incompetent and and they're not even players in the game they're trying to get in there but it's not (laughs) it's not working so yeah i liked it a lot yeah i'm a big fan of this movie i think all three central performances are just so awesome the characters are fascinating and all of them are great and i'm really happy for olivia coleman that she won the oscar for this the writing's really snappy i think it's beautifully shot i love the like black and white dresses the costumes are really Mm -hmm. cool nicholas holt is hilarious i think there are just such well-crafted tent scenes i love the running thing with rachel vice and emma stone going shooting and those Mm -hmm. various her shooting outfit is incredible yeah it's awesome and just the i mean part of the joy of it is that it is this movie about these three women and they're the only significant players really there are men around the outside but you could take them or leave. <laughs> yeah. And I just think Olivia Coleman is so compelling. The character has these wild shifts from ridiculous and pathetic to really captivating. And when she starts to open up to Emma Stone about all of her dead kids and why she loves these rabbits, and you're like, oh my God, like this woman has been through so much. And that scene, she kills me. And the sort of depth and intricacy of her relationship with Rachel Weisz is really interesting and the history that they have together. And at first you're like, wow, Rachel Weisz, you you should probably be nicer to the queen, right? To like keep her favor. She says all sorts of stuff to her where you're like, this feels uncalled for. (laughs) But there's just this long history of the two of them and it really bleeds through and you get the sense of why they were connected originally and how they have gotten where they are now and her sort of frustrations with the queen and also her affection for her. I love Olivia Coleman's face in the scene when Rachel Weiss is dancing and she's like, that whole dance scene is incredible. It's well, okay. First of all, the dancing is hilarious because they've (laughs) done this amazing thing where people know in period English stuff when they get up to do their dances and it's all like Mm -hmm. highly choreographed and you know, they're in rows and then touch hands and then walk away and like whatever the dances are. And they've taken that to like this hilarious extreme of adding in these super bizarre dance moves. And so the dancing itself is amazing. But then Olivia Coleman watching her and having this complete collapse realizing that Rachel Weisz is paying attention to some other person and then she demands to be taken away she can't be at this dance anymore I just think her performance is so fascinating I love all of them I love the writing I love how it looks Yorgos Lanthimos you absolute weirdo (laughs) it's great I will say so we initially had our bracket set up a little bit differently because we subbed in a movie late Mm -hmm. And so initially this movie was up against Roma in the first round. And so I was watching them back to back. And we talked about Roma's beautiful, obviously, Mm -hmm. but it's in black and white. And so I watched Roma and then I put in the favorite and it's so opulent. And then you see the gilded ceiling and all the lush dresses and yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. I, again, involuntarily, when I turned on this movie, went, whoa. (laughs) (laughs) This looks so different. (laughs) It really did. It's like, oh, it's a lot. (laughs) That is an interesting pairing. I mean, they're both beautiful to look at in different ways. The palace that they filmed it in is, is quite striking. The palace is beautiful. But it, I just find the costumes really striking because they are just black and white. All of the women only wear black and white. So the question I had mm-hmm. is I couldn't quite tell when Emma Stone made the decision 
like what were her goals when she got to the palace were her goals always to like marry up like how when did she make the turn from being like a nice lady to being conniving or was she always kind of conniving i don't think so i think she is a nice lady who is seduced by the circumstances yeah because to me there's this interesting turn I love the cut after Sarah leaves. She's poisoned Sarah. Sarah is gone. And this is like obviously the worst thing she's ever done <laughs> in the, over the course of the movies. Mostly she's yeah. just been nice to the queen and she slept with her behind Sarah's back, but it's not the end of the world. And so she leaves and then all of a sudden the cut is to Emma Stone at one of their raucous, horrible parties in mm-hmm. like this really intense makeup that we haven't seen her wear and she's super drunk which we haven't seen from her before the corruption has taken place and so now she has been brought in because we've seen over the course of the movie these various times where she's sort of just going about her business and then she'll encounter some crazy shit nicholas holt is doing like that scene where they're all throwing stuff at that naked guy and you're like what yeah is happening in this world and so that's the first time she really comes into it and then i also feel like that's the beginning of the end for everything with her story with the queen because she's super drunk at this party and then the queen needs companionship and she calls her in and she's sort of too drunk to provide companionship and you're like you've kind of lost sight of yourself at this point if you cannot provide the one function you are here to provide (laughs) this is probably going to be a problem for the two of you so i just i like that turn beat but in i'm obviously it's open to interpretation but in my mind i don't think she came into this this conniving i think it was sort of like the circumstances led her yeah into that yeah and part of it is her being around sarah who is so conniving right you sort of yeah get drawn into the world yeah that seems like the culmination of between the poisoning and that party and that's after she's gotten the thing that she really wants which is marriage to the yeah. guy with the title because now she's protected. I just mm-hmm. like, I couldn't quite see the shift happening. I know. I think it's good. I like it. That's the favorite. Okay. Let's do If Beale Street Could Talk. I believe I'm summarizing this one. Oh, man. The summary is hey, do you want to feel sad? Yeah. We can make that happen for you. Watch this movie. Beale Street Could Talk is the story of a young couple, Tish and Fani. They grew up together, and as they get older, they fall in love. This The movie's sort of told in non-chronological order, or there's like a lot of flashbacks. But mm-hmm. basically what ends up happening is Fani is falsely accused of the violent rape of a woman, and he is sent to prison. And Tish, who is pregnant with Fani's child is working with her family and Fani's father to try to prove his innocence and his alibi for it is that he was with Tish and with another friend of theirs so she knows with certainty that he Mm -hmm. did not commit this crime but it is insufficient evidence right for a jury potentially and the friend has also potentially rolled because He was in prison and he had a terrible experience in prison, unsurprisingly, and he's being threatened with being sent back to prison by the DA. So he might not be willing to hold his ground. So the film is both telling the development of their love story, what sort of happened before this accusation, how they're trying to make their lives together, the difficulties they're having finding a place to live, right? Because they're Black and people won't rent to Black people, what they're going to do to take care of this baby, and then flashing back to the present where they're trying to prove Fani's innocence. One thing that happens in the case is the 
girl who was the victim disappears. And so they need to find her to get her to recant the accusation. She had identified Fani in a lineup and they determined that she has returned to Puerto Rico. She's Puerto Rican. And so they scrape together money for Tish's mother to go down to find her and try to talk her into coming back up and saying it wasn't him. And she reveals that she was pressured by the cops to identify Fani as the guy who did it. It was the first time she ever saw him and the mother's begging her that she's ruining his life. She's altering the lives of the child who's yet to be born. But, you know, this woman has been terribly traumatized. She was the victim of violent crime and she is just not in a place to reconfront that. So she ends up not coming back with her from Puerto Rico. We learn in one of the flashbacks that the reason Fani was brought into a lineup is because he had a run-in with this cop earlier where he got into a physical conflict with a white man who was harassing Tish in a convenience store. And the cop wants to arrest Fani right then and there for assault. But everyone in the convenience store backs up Fani and Tish and says she was being harassed and assaulted. He protected her. But the cop is clearly now identified Fani as someone he wants to take down essentially mm-hmm. and so you know the story is about the system working against this guy and in the end the court date keeps getting pushed back and because of that and because they aren't able to get the woman from puerto rico to come back up he ends up taking a plea deal their son Fonny jr is born and the film ends with tish and Fonny jr who's what what five six at this point visiting Fani Sr. in prison and they're just waiting for him to serve out the term of his plea deal. And yeah, it's it's a real sad one. <laughs> Maddie, what did you think about if Beale Street could talk? I thought it was really sad. <laughs> okay, great. Glad to hear it. It's beautifully shot. It's incredibly well acted. The story is obviously heart-wrenching and realistic. It's an interesting one because the story structure of it at the beginning is sort of about their love story right and their romance Mm -hmm. and them falling in love and also the idea that she is pregnant and she wants to keep the baby and so that one of some of the early stuff going on in the movie is they're telling the parents she tells her parents and they take it really well and then they all get together to tell his parents and then there's a lot of tension with his mother and sisters and so you're kind of just along for the ride of these are normal relationship things this is a story about these people's romance and their love story and how they got together and like how they made it through hardship (laughs) and like all the times when they're looking for a place to live and it's not going well and then finally maybe they're going to find a place to live i love this scene with dave franco when they Mm -hmm. find this loft that they're going to move into but as the storyline with his wrongful arrest is progressing, it's more and more clear that, you know, there's not going to be a happy ending to it because it just doesn't feel like true to the story. And it's so frustrating and devastating and hard because obviously this happens to people all the time. The system is fucked. This happens constantly. It's awful. But What makes it even more terrible is he has this great support system. (laughs) There's all of these people trying to help him, right? Her parents and his dad, and they're all going out of their way to try to help this guy. And they've managed to find money to hire an attorney who also lays it like invested in the case and wants to help the guy. And they've scraped together money to find the witness. They've done more than you could expect anyone to do. to try to clear this guy's name and it's still not enough there's nothing to be done there's no 
pressure to be applied to the people who would actually make a meaningful difference. And the only pressure they end up being able to apply is to this poor woman who's been raped. And it's just so traumatic for her and not at all helpful. So it's just awful. (laughs) It's just so awful to experience. And it's incredibly well done. And it's a beautiful movie. And it's incredibly well made. But it's like too effective. (laughs) It's just like so fucking sad. Yeah, I think I was watching an interview with Barry Jenkins. And he was talking about how he wanted to center like the system as the villain of the story. Yes. And how, you know, obviously, there's that cop who's a bad guy. But Mm -hmm. the point is, it's so easy for a bad actor to manipulate the system to the point that it is insurmountable to overcome. And so he talked about how he really wanted to put in those scenes in Puerto Rico because he wanted to make the victim of the rape sympathetic. It would also be easy to be like, why doesn't this woman just show up and recant her statement? How could she be like this? But to like, again, show, obviously she's been severely traumatized and I don't think you can have a lot of expectations for her to return to New York to say like oh this wasn't the person who did it and then like what they try to work to find the person who did it she has to stay there she has to identify another person like she just wants to put be this away from to it, bed yeah which is you know obviously understandable but yeah it's the lighting is i love the score of this movie the score is gorgeous it's so pretty to look at I love the Dave Franco scene also. I love the Brian Tyree Henry scene it's when he so was talking about being in good. prison. Oh my God, that scene is incredible. Yeah. That one is, I mean, Brian Tyree Henry's great always, but he's great, but that scene is just like, it's coming at it before our main character has been accused of anything. He's just run into this old friend on the street who mm-hmm. hasn't seen in a long time. And he they bring him back for dinner, and Brian Tyree Henry has just gotten out of jail. And at first, they're just like, Oh, how are you? How's the old neighborhood? What have you been up to? And then it gets to a place where he starts sharing his experience and he's telling Fonny like how horrible it was. And the worst thing about it is they make you so scared and there's nothing you can do about it. And Fonny's like, can't really comprehend yet this story that he's being told. So he's being, you know, supportive, but you're reading this like it's it's about to be so much more real for you to right. like it's it's just a stunning scene and brian tyree henry is so good in it and it's so vulnerable in this great way that you wouldn't expect these two guy friends in the 60s to be just bearing their souls to each other in this conversation and it's gorgeous and so sad i can't quite remember but again like the story's not told fully linearly so there's scenes we've had where she's come to the prison to have conversations with him. And it might be after one of the scenes where he has visible injuries to his mm-hmm. face as well. So like, you know that he now fully understands that conversation and we've seen the trauma he's experienced in prison as well. But yeah. Yeah. I'm going to feel sad. If I had any issues with this movie, there's mm-hmm. a very interesting scene, but it, it feels a little separate from the rest of the narrative with Fonny's mother and his sisters Yep. Where they come over because they need Tish to tell everyone in the family that she's pregnant with Fonny's child. And Fonny's mother is like extremely religious. His sisters are extremely stuck up and they clearly don't like the family that Tish belongs to and they don't, they've never liked Tish. Mm-hmm. And Fonny's mom is very cruel to her. And then the father hits her really, really hard and she falls to the floor. And 
you know, it's interesting in terms of the backstory of Fani, but I'm not 100% sure what that scene is trying to say in line with the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. And it's so, it's like, it's really the hitting of her yeah. is like really yeah. intense. And there's no follow-up of like, hey man, I know she's being awful, but maybe you shouldn't hit your wife so hard she falls right. to the floor. And there's, it's interesting because it's the first time we've met any of those people. And, and it's so, the last time we meet the mom and the sisters. They don't come back in the story. Right. His dad becomes someone who's actually a hero of the story. Like he's along with her dad. The two of them go to work selling stolen goods to try mm-hmm. to raise the money to send the mom to Puerto Rico. And so he seems like he's a good guy, right? That's the implication of this. And he loves his son. But it is so fascinating that that is how we are introduced to him and to them and to not see them again and get more of how the like, what's her, going the on there being, yeah there's like something going on there like there's a lot <laughs> how did of you guys end up I, together like, i found it a really compelling scene but the fact yes. that it didn't come back later was sort of like what was up with that yeah that's my only like i'm not so sure but i'm not sure how it fits in but it was an interesting scene i'm just like what is what are it's you it's a really are interesting scene i wonder if there's more of that relationship in the james baldwin book yeah that might be the case we mentioned it, but I want to talk about the Dave Franco scene. I really love this scene. They've been trying to find a place to live and no one will accept them because if they show up together, then nobody wants to rent to the black couple. And so finally they go to this place that is just like an empty warehouse loft floor. And Dave Franco has this space and he's pitching them this vision of what he wants to build here because they haven't fixed it up to be apartments yet. And Fonny's really excited about it and she like wants to get on board, but it's just this There's empty warehouse there. space. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's nothing there. And she's like, I don't, I can't really, where's the house part of it? And so Fonny decides to start like miming. He wants to just paint a picture for her of the space. And so he starts to pretend that he's moving in their stuff. And he's like, what's he has Dave Franco help him. And the two of them pretend to move in a fridge and put it where the kitchen's going to be. And it just like, it was so warm and lovely and their love story is so beautiful. But then also the idea of Dave Franco just being like on board with that. And the two of them do this thing and they've never met each other before. And it's just so lovely. And then afterwards they have this scene with him where they're like, why, why, would why you are you, why are you willing to rent to us? And he's like, Oh, I don't know. I, I just, I just love love. Right. And so yeah. they're like, what, you're a hippie. And he says, no, I'm just my mother's son. Yeah, so he's, I mean, Dave Franco is Jewish, but he's clearly also demarcated as Jewish in the scene. He's wearing a yarmulke. There's no question about if the character he's playing is Jewish. And so we talked a little bit about in our first episode with Black Klansmen, this idea of Black Jewish allyship. And I think that's also what's sort of playing on in the scene, right? And I assume this is embedded in this. I don't think I'm reading too much into it, but the line, I'm my mother's son, Jewishness is passed down matrilineally, right? Yeah. He says, I'm my mother's son. Sometimes that's all the difference between us and them. Yeah. And you're like, Black Jewish allyship, guys. We should do it. Allyship. Allyship. Good. Yay, yay, yay. There's something really fascinating about the scene when Regina King goes and finds the woman who has been raped and is trying to get her on her side and the way that that scene becomes really tense and aggressive And Mm -hmm. I found it really interesting that the arguments she keeps making to this woman are, 
I know he didn't do it. He's my son-in-law. I've known him all his life. I've known, and this is the thing you hear all the time when people are yeah. trying to be like, this per- person couldn't have raped them because I've known him all my life. And I'm the whole time I'm yelling at my screen, like, why don't you mention the fact that you know he has an alibi? <laughs> talk, right. Talk he was somewhere it. else. Multiple people said so. But she doesn't. She leans very much into this. I know him. He can't have done this. And you're like, that's not really a convincing argument. No. We should mention, too, because we mentioned Brian Tyree Henry's in this, and he's great, and Dave Franco's in this, and he's great. Pedro Pascal shows up in this movie, which was a surprise to me, as I assume a relative of this woman who was raped, who is sort of gatekeeping, who can see her. But he also was a pretty lovely person. A thing that I enjoyed about this was there's a lot of love in it. They're surrounded by a lot of people who love them and want to help them in the world. They're not alone. This isn't a movie about people who are alone. And Mm -hmm. even this poor woman who has been raped and like treated horribly in New York, she goes back home. She goes where she has this support system. And there's this man here who was trying to protect her. And he also is just like a good guy. The reason he ends up letting Regina King go see her is because Regina King really like lays her heart out there about why she is here and, and why she needs to be able to see her. And he reluctantly lets her go talk to the woman. But I just, I love that they were all surrounded by all of these people who are trying to help. And that made it even more devastating when it's like, it just doesn't help. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing to be done. Add up to anything when yeah. up against the system. It's beautiful. It's a really, really beautiful. I do like. I recommend it, but just yeah. know you're going to end the movie. It's going to be very sad. Heavy. It's real heavy. But Barry Jenkins is a wonderful filmmaker. Sometimes it's great. Okay. Do you want to transition right into Paddington too? Well, I mean, it's a hard, hard transition, <laughs> but I guess we can. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's there's some plot similarities in a certain way between if Beale Street Interestingly, and Paddington, yes, and Paddington too, but they are handled differently. Tell me about Paddington too. Paddington two, if you haven't seen Paddington one, is about a lovely bear named Paddington. <laughs> And in the first movie, he has found this found family in London, and so when we begin, he's movie from the two, darkest Peru. He is from the darkest Peru. In the beginning of the second movie, he has this lovely family that he lives with in London. And he's one of the family. He lives in their attic. They're all best friends. The family loves him. He loves them. It's great. He's really getting along with everyone in the neighborhood. He's a wonderful presence in the lives of everyone that he meets. And so he has this aunt who is the one who raised him in Peru. He wants to send her a present because it's going to be her birthday. Her 100th birthday. Her 100th birthday. And so he knows this guy who owns a, what, like a curiosity shop. shop. Yeah. And he's just come into a bunch of stuff that they found at this traveling circus that's coming through town. And so Paddington is looking through it for something that might be a nice gift for Aunt Lucy. And he finds this beautiful pop-up book of these various places in London. And he wants to send it to her because she's always wanted to come to London and she's never had the chance. The book is very expensive. And so Paddington starts doing odd jobs and like cleaning the windows for everyone in the neighborhood to raise the money. And while all of this is happening, he ends up going to the fair and letting slip to Hugh Grant's character, who is this aging actor who phoenix buchanan <laughs> yes <laughs> who's 
past his prime a bit and trying to recapture his old glory. He happens to know that this pop-up book is very valuable. One night, Paddington's walking by the store. He sees someone breaking into the store. He goes into the store to chase this guy out. He has stolen the pop-up book. And then in a case of wrongful accusation, Paddington is arrested for the crime of stealing the pop-up book because the cops chasing him don't see who we find out is Hugh Grant's character in disguise. So then there's a trial. And unfortunately, there's no one who can speak on Paddington's behalf. And they even interview Hugh Grant, who is was supposedly a witness because his they ran by his house and he says he did not see this person that Paddington says he was chasing. And so apparently that's enough evidence to put Paddington in jail. And Paddington goes to what can only be described as the jail from Grand Budapest Hotel. He's in this jail with all of these harsh criminals and he's this lovely little guy and he ends up winning them over through the power of marmalade, his favorite food. <laughs> so over the course of him being in prison, his family on the outside is trying to clear his name. Another mm-hmm. similarity. <laughs> and they keep coming to visit him and telling him the updates. And unfortunately, it's very difficult to get a hold of what's going on because Hugh Grant has not left much evidence that it was him. And so they're tracking whoever the hell it is running around town, but they're not making much progress. And then finally, there is a break in the case and they find out that it might be Hugh Grant. But before they are able to go to visit Paddington and tell him that they've made a break in the case, they miss the visitor's hour and Paddington becomes convinced that maybe they've they forgotten him. him. They've forgotten about him. Who knows what could be happening out there? And he has since made friends with all of these hardened criminals who are like, hey, we are going to stage a breakout. <laughs> we could help you. We'll take you with us and we'll go out there and we'll clear your name. And so Paddington decides this is probably what he needs to do. They stage a hilarious breakout, just like in Grand Budapest Hotel. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as they're out, of course, it turns out they don't plan to clear his name. They plan to take him with them out of the country to escape. And he's having none of it. He only wants to clear his name. So he meets up with the family who are like, oh, my God, we know that it's Hugh Grant now. It ends up that Hugh Grant is running away on a train with the pop-up book and there's this spectacular chase escape scene where they're trying to get the book from him and arrest him and Paddington ends up getting tossed from the train into this well not from the train he's in a car he's locked in a train car and that train car goes off a bridge and into the water and his mother figure character jumps in to try to save him but he's chained in there and she has really having trouble getting him out and they have this moment where it's like He could die. They're sharing this eye contact. It's really serious. And then, lo and behold, his criminal friends felt bad for abandoning him. And they turned around and came back. And now here they are to help break him out of the train car. And he does escape. And they do get the book back. And they catch you, Grant. And all is well. Yeah, but the end beat is he's, he gets sick as a result of his whole adventure yeah. and breaking out of prison. He wakes up a few days later and he's like, oh no, I missed Aunt Lucy's birthday. She was going to wake up on her 100th birthday and not have anything for me. And she's going to think I don't appreciate her. And they're like, come downstairs. And it turns out that everyone in the town is pitched in to fly Aunt Lucy to London. And she's there and they can go around London together. It's so nice. <laughs> <laughs> It's just so nice. It's a wonderful movie. Yeah. 
if people need joy in their lives and who doesn't need joy in their lives, especially after watching If Beale Street <laughs> TikTok, you've got to watch Paddington, Paddington too. I, I mean, I love the way this movie is made. It's beautiful. It's obviously in places very Wes Anderson mm-hmm. inspired. That is clear, which is great. I don't think that's a bad place to take inspiration from. But there's just fabulous details. There's inventive sequences that are illustrated. I love when he first looks at the pop-up book and he and Aunt Lucy are walking through the pop-up book together. I think that's great. There's great set design in this movie. I'm obsessed with Phoenix Buchanan's house because there are just photos of Hugh Grant everywhere. And obviously there's some like stills from actual young Hugh Grant, but there's just drawings. His house is just covered in pictures of himself, which is so great. And then, yeah, you'll laugh. It's really legitimately funny. And Richard Ayoade is in this film for like 10 seconds. And it's one of the funniest things I've ever seen. I love his little bit so much. I always love Richard Ayoade. But I think before we get any further, the conversation Mm -hmm. about this movie must be about Hugh Grant. Can we talk about Hugh Grant? We can definitely talk about Hugh Grant. Hugh Grant is incredible in this film. It is one of, if not his best performance in a movie. I think it's probably his best ever performance. And I'm, I want to preface this with, I like Hugh Grant. I've liked a lot of his performances. I'm no Hugh Grant hater. He's great, but I've never seen him do this. It's incredible. (laughs) He's so incredibly good in this. He's just, he's pitched perfect. He's this insane, conceited actor. He gets to do like different characters as his different characters talking to himself. But also he's just, he's he's doing a lot and it's all great. And then he has a dance number at the end. There's an end credit yes. sequence where he's in prison doing the one man show. The reason he wants the money from the pop-up book is he wants to do a one man show to make it back onto the stage to again, be a respected mm-hmm. actor. And so he ends up doing his one man show in the prison. And there's this great NB joke where he says, I guess I didn't really need the West End. All I needed was a captive audience. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so good. Every single thing he does in this is great. You're hanging on his every word. His delivery is just perfect. The stuff that he says, the way that he says it, he's amazing. And it's so nice to see someone well into their career with a very established persona. You feel like you know what you're going to get with a Hugh Grant character. (laughs) And it's not that at all. It's a totally new thing. He must have felt so free. He looks like he's having so much fun. It's just amazing. He's great. I love him so much. I also love Brendan Gleeson in this movie. He's so cute. (laughs) He's adorable. He's adorable. They're all just so good. This is another one. This movie just feels like a warm hug. Everyone in it is fully committed to the precise tone of the movie. Nobody in it feels like they're like too cool for Paddington, you know? And it just, there's so much love. It's Mm -hmm. beautiful. And Paddington is a pure heart. He's a truly good boy. Ben Wishaw's great as the voice of Paddington. He does a perfect job. And it's also just like, it's super well structured. Everything that they establish comes back in some way. We learn early on that one of the reasons the mom fell in love with the dad is because he was great at hitting coconuts at the fair. And he's going through this midlife crisis, like, I'm not that guy anymore. And then at the end, he beans Hugh Grant to save the day, which is a lot of fun. Yeah, it's super well structured. It's inventively filmed. It is heartwarming. It has a great message, which is kindness first, not so dissimilar from everything ever all at once, right? Yep. 
a, a plea to kindness. It's a fun adventure. There's a mystery that unfolds. What's the complaint about? There's nothing to complain about. I've never heard anyone have a complaint about Paddington 2. And if you do have a complaint about Paddington 2, there's something wrong with you. Do you have no love in your heart? It's a wonderful film. So yeah, I said this to you before we recorded, but as you put it, in a vacuum, no one wants to take away Mahershala Ali's second Oscar, but mm-hmm. like, I don't know, Hugh Grant, Richard E. Grant, some, Either Grant. some kind of British Grant this year, maybe. <laughs> maybe I mean, Hugh Grant at least should have been nominated. Yeah. What are we doing? Have you seen the man? It's amazing. <laughs> it's a fun performance. He's so good. One of the little pieces of set design, like everything is so detailed. In the scene where the mom has started to put together that it might be Hugh Grant, mm-hmm. they're in their kitchen and there's a little like board on the wall that has a to-do list and it just says to-do, free Paddington. <laughs> <laughs> that is number one on the list. It's, it's the only thing important. on the list. Yeah. It's the only thing on the list. But it's also funny that you would write that down, right? Don't want to forget. And I just like this idea of, like, he's been this wonderful, positive influence on his community. And as soon as he's removed from it, the neighbors are sort of all at each other's throats again because he's not there to bring his light. It's sort of like, it's a wonderful life without, you know. A death. Without a death. Yeah. But it's like that, like, not that he was feeling bad about himself and needed to learn that people loved him, but it's that similar sort of influence that one person can have on their community and it feels small, but it's actually very meaningful. Yes, it's the little things that add up and and matter to people. Kindness. Shall we talk about our four seed? Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. So the story takes place in a world, in a world, in a world (laughs) where there is a Spider-Man. Peter Parker is around our classic Spider-Man. But we are really focused in on this young kid named Miles Morales. He is half black and half Puerto Rican, lives in Brooklyn. And he's a bright kid. He won a lottery admission to this private academy or a charter school. And so he's feeling a lot of pressure all around him. He's very creative. He has a tendency to to do graffiti art and put stickers places. And his dad, who's a cop, is like, stop doing that. (laughs) Go to this school. Do well at this school. We have a lot of hopes for you. But he's struggling. He doesn't fit in in the school as well as he did in his neighborhood. And pretty early on into like, I don't know, two weeks or whatever, he's already trying to like flunk out. He got every answer on his test wrong. So his teacher is like, which means you know the answer to every question. Otherwise, it'd be closer to 50%. Write an essay on what do you want to do with your life? Who do you want to be? And so he runs away from the school to hang out with his uncle for an, an evening. His uncle does not get along with the father, but he accepts Miles for who he is. He doesn't put pressure on him to do anything in particular. It's a place where Miles can be himself. And the uncle tanks him down into the subways and they put up this really beautiful tag of Miles's artwork. And while he's down there, oh no, he gets bitten by a radioactive spider. <laughs> Happens to the best of us. It surely does. And he wakes up the next day and he's gone through what seems like a gross spurt. His pants are way too short and he's freaking out. He runs into another new student who he had met the day before, Gwanda <laughs> from South Africa. Gwanda, yeah. Gwanda. And he tries to do something his uncle told him to do to, to get a girl, which is to put his hand on her shoulder and go, hey. But instead, hey. he accidentally gets his, his hand stuck in her hair and he can't release it. It's like his hand is covered in glue. And so she ends up getting her hair shaved off and he's got all of this hair stuck to his hand and he's freaking out. He's developed spider powers, basically, is what's happened. 
He goes back to the subway to see if he could find the spider that bit him and see what it was. It's a weird ass spider. While he's down there, he hears a noise. He goes down a hallway and basically he finds this giant machine that's being built under Brooklyn. He sees Spider-Man fighting a bunch of villains, Green Goblin, the Prowler, maybe someone else. And Spider-Man recognizes like, oh, you're like me. I'll train you. Don't worry. I'm going to help you learn the ropes. This is so great. But Spider-Man dies in this fight as they're turning on this huge machine that's causing these earthquakes in Brooklyn. And this is obviously quite traumatic for Miles to see Spider-Man die in front of him. But one thing that's happened when the collider was on is the Green Goblin put him in the beam. And what that has done is it's brought a bunch of spider people from alternate universes to their universe. And... Basically, he meets all the different spider people. There's a direct alternate Peter Parker, Peter B. Parker. There's Gwanda is actually Gwen, Spider-Woman from another universe. And they end up meeting Spider-Man Noir, Spider-Ham, and Penny Parker, who's like an anime spider person. And they're all working to try to go back to their own universes and shut down the collider. Miles is like, I have to be the one to shut it down because if you all stay in this universe, you'll die. But he's, he's just not up to scratch. He's not going to be able to do it. Meanwhile, he learns that his uncle is the Prowler, this villain. And in a conflict, it is revealed to the uncle that Miles is this new young spider kid. And in a classic Spider-Man origin story, as the uncle's holding him up on a rooftop, he is shot by Kingpin for not doing his job. And he dies. And it's very sad. Basically, Miles is left by the other spider people who are going to go back. He's dealing, obviously, with the death of his uncle. He has this conversation with Peter B. Parker about, like, how am I going to know when I can do it? And Peter B. Parker is like, you won't. You just have to do things. That's what growing up is. And at the same time, his father comes to him and is like, I don't want us to grow apart. I grew apart from your, my brother and something's happened. And I don't want that to happen to you. I see so much potential in you, but I know that whatever you do, you'll be great. And so he sort of goes shifts from having this expectation, these specific pressures to just acceptance and like, I love you. You're going to be great. You do you. And so that gives Miles the confidence to be able to control his powers. He goes to where all the other spider people are. He's able to save the day, send all the other spider people back And that's Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. I love it. (laughs) It's such an excellent movie. I kept a cry count because I cried four times watching this movie. Hell yeah. (laughs) Hell yeah. It's just so good. I mean, it's, I think, by far the best Spider-Man movie that exists. And there are some good Spider-Man movies. Mm -hmm. But this one is just so magical for a variety of reasons. The... Stuff with his family works so well. His relationship with his dad is perfectly realized. His relationship with his uncle is great. And it all really hits you. Yeah, the uncle's death scene is like so sad. But the scene when his dad is talking to him through the door, like, oh, Hmm. I was crying so much. (laughs) And then also there's like all of the other Spider-Men work in a really good way, too, where some of them are comedic relief Spider-Men, like Spider-Ham and... (laughs) So that's really great because they're just fun to be there. But also the Peter B. Parker arc is actually really good. He has a good emotional arc because where he's coming from in his universe, he's like down on his luck. He's messed up his relationship with his woman he loves. He's, you know, like let himself go. He's not working out. He's just sitting around eating pizza and feeling bad about himself. And so then he, through his relationship with Miles, he really becomes like a better 
version of himself and he his the root of his issue with his he's with MJ right in his universe <laughs> and so the reason their relationship broke up is that she wanted kids and he never felt like he was ready for that and so there's this beautiful arc with his relationship with Miles where he's training him and then when Miles has finally had his conversation with his dad and feels good and he's mastered his powers and he shows up Peter B. Parker is like I love you I'm so proud of you do I want kids? <laughs> It's great. Everyone is so affected by their story. And then when they have to leave, it's heartbreaking. It's just so, so good. And it also looks incredible. Yes. Before you move on, that arc is great, too, because obviously he tells Miles, you won't know you're ready. It's a leap of faith. And that's like going to adulthood. But that's any new thing you do. You're not Uh going to have experience before you do it. You're never going to be ready. If you if you want to do it, you have to do it. It's a leap yeah. of faith. Certainly nobody's ever ready to have kids. Now that's a whole like new thing. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, everybody's life is like positively impacted other than the dead uncle. But yeah, it's we'll get into the specific emotional stuff, but we have to talk about what it looks like. It is so yes. cool looking. The animation is awesome. And there's lots of it that looks like frames from a comic book. And it really makes me as someone who is not a comic book reader feel like this must be how people who love comic books feel when they read them. It's like capturing the spirit of the thing in a way that is really accessible. And it just is so goddamn cool. Yeah. Yeah. It looks incredible. And I mean, we didn't talk about this and anything important happening this year in cinema, but there is an interesting conversation around this movie in terms of the influence it has had on animation moving forward. So my understanding is the look of Disney Pixar movies really became ascendant. Mm -hmm. And obviously, like the proportions of people's faces and bodies are cartoony in Disney Pixar movies still, but they all have a sort of similarity to them. And they're always going towards photorealism, particularly like with backgrounds and with the way people moved. And like, I know there's always been so much talk about how much work Disney has put into getting hair in animated movies to look very realistic, right? (laughs) And this movie is much more stylized. It showed people you can make this stylized movie and it can work and it can be beautiful. And animation shouldn't be limited to photorealism because you can do literally anything with animation. It's a very flexible medium, theoretically. And so there's been this shift now towards more like expressionistic animation. And they talk about how the Puss in Boots movie that just came out, it's got almost a watercolor look to it, and especially Mm -hmm. in the backgrounds. And so, you know, in terms of cultural impact, right, when we talk about these films, the visuals of this did have an impact on animation, I think, in a great way, because it's true. Mm -hmm. Animation should be whatever, which is the feature of animation, right? Yeah. There are no rules. It's animation. Yeah. If you can draw it, it should be a thing that can happen. (laughs) Exactly. But yeah, the specific beats of it, it's just so well written and the emotions of it all work so well. Yeah. It's impressive shit. I love this movie so much. I think it is so well constructed and so beautiful. And once again, you laugh, you cry. It's incredibly funny in places. Yeah. I think the casting of it is great i particularly love some of jake johnson's line deliveries they make me laugh so i love jake johnson (laughs) joke johnson am i right (laughs) absolutely when you were typing his name at one point you wrote joke johnson i was like 100 percent. the part when he's talking to miles 
about what happened to him. This is one of my favorite line deliveries in anything ever. But when he says, flash forward, I'm in my apartment doing push-ups, doing ab crunches, getting strong. <laughs> and you see like the contrast to him eating pizza. It's one of my favorite line deliveries <laughs> getting of strong. all time. Getting strong. Uh, classic Jake. The whole voice cast is fantastic. It's a yes. deep and awesome lineup of voice actors. This brings me to a question. Mm-hmm. We talk about the different ways the Academy could move in terms of how they nominate things or what kinds of things they nominate. You know, should there be a stunt category? Is having an animation category like separating animated films from regular films in a way that's positive or negative? Do you Mm -hmm. think people should be able to be nominated for acting performances for voice acting or should there be a voice acting category? I think maybe there should be a voice acting category. Because it is such a particular skill that is different than anything else. And when done well, it can be really, really effective and good and impressive. And I mean, it's not like a lot of the time in casts where people are just, you know, you cast a bunch of celebrities for this animated thing and they're kind of just all doing their own voice. Like that's its own thing where maybe it's not so amazing but then we've talked a lot about bradley cooper and guardians of the galaxy i mean part of my motivation is a strong feeling that that's bradley cooper's best performance i mean he's done some good work but it's up there (laughs) that's really really great he's created an entire character from his voice and who recognizes that right there's just this vacuum of the amount of work that goes into it for not any kind of recognition by the broader community so sure there should be a voice acting category why the hell not all right i'm glad i'm glad we agree and also (laughs) maybe just like an honorary award for bradley cooper and sean gunn for (laughs) i also have to say this is a theme of many pieces of media not always carried off as successfully as in this one but i really feel like they do a great job with the anyone can wear the mask of it all, right? I love it so much. It's so well done. It's threaded through the heart of the piece. And I love that there is a Peter Parker in his world, right? Like I love that Mm -hmm. Miles Morales is coming up in a world where there already is Spider-Man and you would grow up not thinking like, oh, I could be Spider-Man because there is Spider-Man. But like, why can't you be Spider-Man, kid? Anyone can. (laughs) (laughs) You can get bitten by a radioactive spider. That's not limited by... Age, race. No, I think it's a beautiful message and it's an important one, right? Yep. Anyone can do good. It doesn't take someone of a particular type to do that. It feels like taking Spider-Man to its natural conclusion, right? There's always been this thing about Spider-Man where he is kind of an everyman and people are supposed to be able to look at it and be like, he's just some kid and this could happen to anyone. But of course, it's like it always happens to the white guy. Yeah. <laughs> but in, in this case, it's like, no, it really could happen to anyone. It anyone at all. A, a black kid, a girl, yeah. a spider who was bitten by a radioactive pig. <laughs> <laughs> so anyone... Anyone, baby, anyone. I don't know if you have other things to really talk about, but I I don't want to move forward without talking about the What's Up Danger sequence specifically, which is when everything sort of comes together for Miles. So it's set to the song What's Up Danger. I also love the soundtrack to this movie. It's really good. And it's after everyone's told him, like, you can't come, you're not ready. And then the scene with his dad where he's talking to him about how he sees the spark in him. And earlier in the movie, right, we've seen him try to test out his powers by like running up to the top of this building, kind of like Peter Parker did. He's trying to follow this model of Peter Parker. 
And he goes back, he gets his web shooters that fit perfectly. He makes his own suit. He goes up to the top of this tall skyscraper, much higher than the one he'd been in before, to make sure that he can swing and test out his powers. And there's that little image where he's falling up through the building. He's rising through the buildings as opposed to falling through the buildings. It's stunning. It's so beautiful. It's Mm -hmm. just, it's just, oh, Uh, I watch that scene all the time. Like if I'm struggling with my anxiety and I'm feeling anxious and I need to remember that things are a leap of faith, like I just, Mm -hmm. I pull up the what's of danger sequence and it gets me every time. I think it's perfect. It's awesome. It's really, really awesome. This is, I mean, just what an accomplishment of filmmaking this whole thing is because every little piece of it is perfectly realized, but then all of it works together in this awesome way. Where it's, even though all of the parts are great, it still is greater than the sum of its parts. Yeah. It's really good. I like the part, I think you mentioned it earlier, when Jake Johnson, like the training's starting to happen. And it's starting to work. And he's like, me as the teacher could still do it. You as the student who can do it, just not as good. And I was like, do you think Tom Cruise saw this? And he was like, that's Top Gun Maverick. <laughs> me as the teacher who can still do it. You as the student who can do it, just not as good. That is the thesis statement of Top Gun, to be fair. Of course, it comes at the beginning of Peter B. Parker's arc, and he changes as a person over the course of the film. No, that's the whole Top Gun Maverick movie. (laughs) I was like, that's it. That's the whole thing. That's the story. (laughs) I guess I'll say what my four cries were, since I was keeping account. I cried when... Spider-Man dies and he goes home. Miles goes home. Mm-hmm. And there's that scene with his mom and his dad. And his dad still is str- at the, that point struggling to connect with him. So the mom is like, just get out of here. And then he and his mom have that moment. That made me cry. Mm-hmm. I cried when his uncle died, obviously. Sure. <laughs> that scene is really sad. I cried when his dad gave him the speech through the door about he, how he doesn't want them to drift apart. Mm-hmm. And then I cried again after they've made it through and he has that phone conversation with his dad after all of it has happened and his dad is all like, that's such a wild thing to have happened to his dad too. Yeah. <laughs> to, to witness that whole collider thing and just be like, well, back to normal day as a police officer. But I guess there are living in a Spider-Man world, so weird shit happens regularly. Yeah, 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 yeah. You'd be more used to weird shit, but still. That's a that lot. was really weird. It was pretty it was weird. Really weird. <laughs> I will add another cry point for me, yeah. which is the cameo scene with Stan Lee. Oh yeah, that's nice. It's really good. <laughs> and then yeah, just getting back to the voice casting, like the decision to cast Nick Cage as Spider-Man Noir. Great, John Spider- Mulaney we haven't even talked about Spider-Man Noir. He's so oh, funny. I love him. <laughs> I love Spider-Man Noir. I mean, he's, we talked about, what, what was the movie we did? Double Indemnity, how like, you know, there's that hilarious way they do dialogue and yeah. they, they just use it. Wherever I go, the wind follows and the wind, it smells like rain. <laughs> <laughs> he's wonderful. But yeah, you were saying John Mulaney as Spider-Ham. He's excellent. Great casting. I also noticed in the credits that there is someone named Interesting Person Number One that Oscar Isaac played. <laughs> Any idea who that is? He's the Spider-Man in the post credit scene who's time traveling. Okay, that makes sense. The other thing that I love is also Miles' character introduction where we see him and he's singing along to Sunflower. Yes. And it's like, yep, I know this kid. I relate to this kid. We've all done that. It reminds me a little bit of the Star-Lord introduction where you're like, 
I get it. Yeah. The character development is impressive. All right. So what wins? This or Paddington 2? It's really hard. I feel like this is really difficult because they're both so wonderful. Paddington mm-hmm. 2 is just this warm hug of a like the world can be nice and Spider-Man feels much more realistic but still and manages to give you a warm hug. Yes. <laughs> Even though it's like the world is actually kind of rough, but maybe if we all work together, we can make it better. I don't know. I'm leaning towards Spider-Man at the moment. What's your what are your thoughts? I'm leaning that way too. I mean, you know, a movie doesn't have to make you cry to be great, but it's nice when you can experience a wider range of emotions, maybe. And then I just think the animation is so impressive. Paddington is is beautifully made. It's absolutely beautiful. It's super creative. I wouldn't change anything about it visually, but I don't I don't know if it's as impressive as the animation in Into the Spider-Verse. Well, there's heavily cribbing from Wes Anderson, to be fair. (laughs) And again, great choice. Absolutely. It totally works. And as I already said, I would change nothing about that movie, but I also would change nothing about Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. So I think it just hits a little bit harder. Though, to be fair, I think I did tear up when Aunt Lucy showed up at the end. I mean, that is really (laughs) good. That is real. That's fair. That is fair. But I didn't have to come up with a cry count because I wasn't Mm -hmm. keeping track. We should definitely give Spider-Man points for the animation. It is above and beyond anything else, like anything that any of these other movies are doing. But I also think the story works just as well as any of these other stories. All right. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. The winner. Wow. You won Best Animated Feature, but you should have won just Best Picture, baby. Mm Mm-hmm. We'll see if that happens again over the course of the podcast. It might. Yeah, very possible. But let us not let that blind us to the fact that this whole year was pretty damn great. How many it movies really did we talk about that we loved? It's never happened that we've had like upwards of 10, 11, 12, 12 movies that we really like. It doesn't happen. Yeah, it's so interesting because people are constantly like lamenting the death of cinema. And it's like, I don't know. It seems like good movies come out all the time. Yeah. So maybe it's just they're not number one at the box office. Like when Ordinary People was number one at the box office. But people are still making them. Well, when Ordinary People came out, it didn't have to compete with Avengers Endgame. Infinity War this year. Avengers Infinity War. Point taken. This is what I'm saying. Point taken. No, but people are still making great movies. Somehow, they're managing to do it. Yeah. Okay, let's get into some conclusions. So Woo. we said what should have won this year. Clearly, we've gone through this Check. whole tournament. Spider-Man and the Spider-Verse. Did the Oscars get it wrong? Yes. <laughs> they did get it wrong. And to be fair to them, they nominated a fair few excellent movies. Yes. Many of the movies that they nominated were very good. It's just that there also were a bunch of things they didn't nominate that were as good or better than the things that they did yes. nominate. And some of the nominees were not great. Yes. They still had your Vice, your Bohemian Rhapsody, your Green Book, right? Which I think most people agree. Well, different takes on them, but anywhere from really mixed reviews to like milk toast at best. Mm-hmm. And I think we can all agree that the winner was wrong. Yes. (laughs) Got out in our first round. Deservedly. 
I think the Academy is pulling pranks on people. I am really into this conspiracy theory that they're doing it intentionally. I like that a lot. Yeah. Okay. Well, before we get to too much conclusion, we need to take a little trip down the lane to Jake Gyllenhaal Corner. Now, it's 2018. He's Mm -hmm. around. He's working. Definitely. Where are his movies? Why are they not nominated? He was in two movies this year. He was in The Sisters Brothers, which Uh neither of us have seen. And he was in a little movie, right, called Wildlife, which you have seen. I have seen it. It is Paul Dano's directorial debut. And it is an intimate little character piece. And I quite like it. It's a beautiful movie. It's a strong, you know, performance from Jake and everybody in it. It's beautifully shot. Paul Dano apparently could be an up-and-coming filmmaker if he wanted to stop acting. So, yeah, Jake's excellent in it. I would have no problem with him being nominated. I'm sure there's a little bit of looseness in the category. Who won? We well, nominated? Mahershala won. won. Oh, no, Vigo well, won. won. supporting. Vigo won in Best Actor. No, Rami Malek won in Best Actor. Oh, right. Sorry, I don't know. Vigo was nominated. This Vigo is was the nominated. conversation I was trying to have. Vigo was nominated, and his performance isn't bad, but the movie's whatever. Do we really need to nominate him? And then there was somebody else who I was like, do we really need them? Oh, it was Christian Bale for Vice. Yeah. The only eh. performance we didn't see from the Best Actor group was Willem Dafoe was nominated for that Vincent Van Gogh movie he did. Yeah. But I will say, I love Willem Dafoe. Again, we all do. <laughs> He's great. <laughs> we just can't speak to that particular performance because I, or no. unless you've seen that movie. I haven't. Okay, me neither. Now, I can't speak we haven't it. seen the Sisters Brothers, but I will say it looks awesome. It looks fun. Yeah, I could be into that. Good cast. Jake, I assume, would be a supporting actor for that one. Seems like it. I think our strongest feeling about any of the acting categories is Hugh Grant should have been nominated. 1,000% he should have. And maybe one. <laughs> and maybe one. Again, no issues with Mahershala Ali. We love the band and he deserves two Oscars. Sure. But- for this, I don't know. Was his performance better than Hugh Grant's? Probably not. No. All right. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> but to be to be fair to the man, whose was better than Hugh Grant's this year? None that I can think of. No. I think Richard E. Grant is in the conversation. I really loved him. In, in he was excellent. Me. He was excellent. But I don't know if I was as impressed by him as I was by Hugh Grant. All right. Well, sorry, Jake. I mean, he could be nominated for Wildlife, but I'm not going to let go to the mat because I feel like it's a bit of a loose category. Mm -hmm. Okay. Do you see yourself coming back to any of these movies? Hell yeah. Spider-Man and the Spider-Verse, obviously. Paddington Mm -hmm. 2, any day. Any day. Death of Stalin, yes. I I mean, I would love to show people Sorry to Bother You just to like watch it. Hell yeah. Unfold for them. And I would rewatch that movie too. But it's probably more fun to watch someone see that reveal. I'd rewatch The Favorite. I'd rewatch Burning. I did for this. I'd rewatch Roma, even though it's not the lightest movie. I'd rewatch Black Klansmen. I'd rewatch Can You Forgive Me? I'd rewatch Eighth Grade. I, I could actually see myself rewatching If Beale Street Could Talk, but I would have to be like, I would like to feel sad today. If I wake up one day and say to myself, you know what? Today is a day to feel sad sometimes you are feeling that way and you need a movie that'll make you cry and if Beale street could talk that'll do it so really probably the easier thing to say is which of these movies am i not revisiting for me 
it's actually the four lowest rated films in the group. A Star mm-hmm. is Born, Green Book, Vice, and Bohemian Rhapsody. I'm probably not going to rewatch. Yep. I agree with that. A Star is Born, I have seen multiple times, and I do like it much more than you, but it's also not something that I probably am going to put on again. But yeah, the rest of it's pretty good. Yeah, that's 12 films. That's a hell of a success rate, I think. And yeah, a lot of it is serious, so you'd have to be in the right mood. A lot of it is fun, though, and you could rewatch any time. Okay, have we learned anything? Well, we've started to form a theory about the Academy and their ulterior motives. I want it to be true, but I don't know if we've learned anything other than the Academy, if the conspiracy theory is not true, has not learned their lesson about taking these pretty bland Let's Be Friends movies and elevating them to a place where they should not be. Yes. What the Academy will have to explain, though, is why they did not nominate Remember the Titans. If we're going to nominate these couple of movies, explain yourself, Academy. It's the nine to five Tootsie dilemma all over again. I think the only other thing, this is something we kind of know, is the Academy overvalues biopics. Yep. Because both of the biopics are some of the lowest rated of these films. So we have two biopics, Vice, Bohemian Rhapsody. They're whatever. (laughs) we are also doing better this year than off we often are for original ideas yeah only three of our eight are not original ideas i said that in the more confusing way right black panther's based on a comic book black clansman on a memoir star is born is a remake of the various other star is borns but all of the other movies are original great job i don't know why we still continue to treat this as if there is some sort of positive or negative weight to the originality of the movies when we (laughs) yeah i mean i think we are only tracking it to see if there's any patterns but based on our first season it seems like this is always the case it's it's mostly not original ideas but we might still want to see if there's like an uptick or a downtick somewhere i am intrigued to continue tracking it i just think it's funny that at this point we're like yeah there are lots of great not quote unquote original movies and there are lots of not great original movies <laughs> but still every time yeah. if there's more original movies we're like good job <laughs> well, it's still nice to see some you know direct creativity but yeah. it doesn't really matter no all right we covered a lot this year any final thoughts before we head out just watch all of these movies we've made our thoughts quite clear what are we talking about next time We're going back to the 60s. We've been out in the 60s quite a bit recently. We'll be talking about the 40th Academy Awards or the films of 1967. The nominees that year were Bonnie and Clyde, Dr. Doolittle, The Graduate, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and In the Heat of the Night. How many of those have you seen? A lot of classics. I have seen three of them. I've seen Bonnie and Clyde, The Graduate, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. How about you? I've also seen three of them the graduate guess who's coming to dinner and in the heat of the night there you go we're both gonna be surprised by dr doolittle (laughs) it could be anything (laughs) i've seen the eddie murphy one and i like that you've also seen the robert downey jr one and i hated that so it could go either way truly good Okay. In the meantime, if you have thoughts about any of these movies, comments, questions, concerns, reach out to us at OscarsWrongPod at gmail.com and on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at OscarsWrongPod. Our website is OscarsWrongPod.com. 
If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend, leave a review, and subscribe. New episodes of the pod come out every other Friday at 6 o'clock Eastern, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.